What's your passion? We're on a mission to make a real difference. Soulfront. At Soulfront, we're on a mission to interview interesting people with a passion to make significant change. Our interviews are conversational, lighthearted, and we like to inject some fun in there too. We're looking for the person behind the passion to understand what it takes to be significant. So please join us. I want to tell you about Work Nicer. Work Nicer is a co-working space based in Alberta that's growing by the hundreds. Located at the Roxbury, Stephen Avenue, and Red Mile locations in Calgary, and now the Beaver House in Edmonton, it continues to grow. What they say at Work Nicer is no one succeeds alone, and that you belong here. Their culture is devoted to friendliness, openness, and it's just a fun place to work. My favorite is Drink Nicer on Fridays, but there's so many different activities to do. It's truly an electric place for entrepreneurs, artists, and creators to spend their time. I highly recommend that you book a tour. Now back to the show. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks Thanks, thanks so much for, for coming. So That's an honor. I want to just kind of go through a little bit about you. A, a lot of things to go over, actually. You were a shooting guard at uh, the University of Alberta Golden Bears basketball team. You have been a founder in augmented reality, co-founder of a marketing group, a professional or commercial model, which is really cool. That's something that I was never able to do. I'm never able to check that one off my list. That was uh, a really good point to that. I'll get to that in a sec, but... Uh, Uh, Creator of uh, Capsule, a video community that uh, used artificial intelligence to help people better discover more relevant uh, recommendations from people they know and trust. You are now a VP with a company called Autonomic, the VP of the Canadian operations for the San Francisco Bay Area machine learning company, which is really exciting. I noticed that there's also a project that you're working on, which is looking at building almost not, not a bridge between downtown and White Avenue, but gondolas, the gondolas. I I love that. So it's called a Prairie Sky Gondola. Prairie Sky. I think that's a beautiful idea because that's two of kind of the most exciting places Mm -hmm. in town. Um, And also the Sea Tribe Festival. You are the founder of this and it's a community driven by connecting diversity, innovation, and creative people to achieve their dreams. And I think that you had over 50 speakers and 1,000 attendees the, the last time uh, mm-hmm. that was put together. So, you know, if somebody were to kind of peel it back and ask you, like, what do you do? Like, how do you, how do you answer that? Like, what, what, what would you say? That's a really good question. I think this is a, it kind of peels off into a really good thread because I think we allow singular things or things that aren't very robust to define us, right? So if you ask me what I do on on certain days, I could say that I I model. If you ask me what I do on other days, I can say that I I do digital strategy for for autonomic or I I build teams with C tribe or there's there's so many things that I can kinda get my my hands in. But at the end of the day I I think my how I like to define myself is uh, just a, uh, a digital generalist, right? I, I love everything that, you know, innovation and creativity has to offer. And 
I think it's really democratizing and decentralizing opportunities for a lot of people. Anything that I look to take on, I just kind of look to run it through that lens. Like, is this a big problem that we're solving, A, and B, can this be scaled using technology so that it can reach the masses and stuff? Ideally, it's through digital technology and innovation that we can we can do these things and stuff, right? So it's a really tough question for me to answer, especially because I, I do have my hands in a few things. But I think that's what I like to say. I, I'm a digital generalist. Now, if we were to kind of go back, and this is where I like to take the podcast just thinking about your life, uh, were there I, things that happened in your life which were kind of sparks, things that kind of helped define you as a person, stories that you have or stories that you tell yourself that help guide you along this path of what you are wanting to do in your life and your career? I think there's a few. And I mean, the earliest that I can remember is I... I used to be a really good soccer player when I was younger. Uh, soccer was the first sport that I fell in love with before I transitioned into basketball. I was in, I think, I want to say about U11 or U12 soccer, so under 11, under 12. And I've been playing since about U7, U6, U7. For From U6, U7, all the way to U... 11 or 12, I never lost a soccer game in my entire life. So I went almost five straight seasons of just playing the sport that I love and never really having suffered a loss before. I just remember it was the championship game of the U12, I used to live in Millwood, the Millwood's championships or something. We ended up losing 2-1 and it was the first time that I really suffered defeat and I mean if you can imagine being that young and A never have understood what failure or suffering was before to, to whatever degree B everyone considering you as oh like you know this guy is he's really good at what he does you know he's he's never lost a game in his life so you kind of carried around this almost like nothing could touch you, right? Like no one could interrupt this kind of vibe or aura that you created around yourself. I just remember the feeling of losing that first game. They handed us our silver medals at the end of it. I, I was embarrassed to even put it around my neck. And my parents, they were in the, they were in the crowd at the time and they, they saw this. As we were heading towards the cars, I just stayed in the field and there was this Powerade, empty Powerade bottle that I would just like kick around, just so frustrated. And I just have never felt this feeling before, right, of, of, of loss. Just the attitude that my parents had towards that, I think it's something that has stuck with me. Basically, their attitude was, so, so what? So what are you gonna do about it? Are you going to cry and sulk and you know, let this define who you are? Or are you going to go into the next season and perform even better? And I mean, if you can imagine being that young, you would think that your parents would be the ones to console you and love you and be like, 
this should have never have happened to you. I think kind of how ideally a lot of our parents do treat us and treat our kids and stuff. And I think it was at that moment that it really taught me that failure and defeat was okay. That life moves on. It's more about how you pick yourself up and how you how you move forward. And I mean, long story short, I ended up, you know, playing with the with the junior national team, and the, the rest of my soccer career was very, you know, illustrious and, and, and colorful. And it transitioned into how I would approach the game of basketball and other things in my life, whether it be entrepreneurship and stuff. But it was just really that one moment, and just I just remember being so young and how how much it just it meant to me at the time, right? Mm. Um, I think that's that's one very defining story of myself. How about how about your folks? Um, a little bit about their histories. Do do you see them or other people in your family who um, have faced challenges or have had stories about challenges that kind of also really ground you? I think my parents are the ultimate hustlers, ultimate entrepreneurs, ultimate risk takers. And it really puts things into perspective for me when I go to take on a new venture and it might seem very bold and ambitious. And then I compare it to the things that they've been through. And it's like, this is this is peanuts, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, just a really quick background. I mean, my, my parents, they immigrated here in in 93 from from Sierra Leone, um, you know, company, Cusca, sorry, it's a country in West Africa. Uh, still to this day, one of the most resource heavy, you know, we have the best, you know, oil mines, diamond mines, um, you know, uh, cacao mines and everything, right? Still, it hasn't been a country that's been able to escape poverty. So my dad, he got offered a position as a, as a research, research scientist. So he went to an event in, I think, Geneva, because he was studying in, in London. He went to an event in Geneva. Um, he met some Canadians there, ended up offering him a, a job based out of uh, Devon at this place called Environmental Test or something. And when he came back to Africa to just be with the family again, uh, my mom was like, you know what, let's not jump on this right away. We still have a lot of our family here, our extended family here. So let's just, let's not, basically, let's not do this. <laughs> but then the Civil War broke out in, in Sierra Leone in about 92, 93. And the rebel group that was kind of trying to overtake the government, they were making their way into the villages where my, my parents were, were based out of. Luckily, my dad still had this offer letter and this opportunity to come to Canada. And one of those, we have to leave everything behind and just pick up and go, right? And I mean, if you can imagine with two young kids and you know your wife coming into Canada in February, right? <laughs> Arguably one of the coldest months <laughs> and stuff. And then having to build a life for you and your family, like that is the ultimate risk for me that alone has really just set the precedence of things that I look at what are what are possible and what, what we can achieve in our in, in our lifetimes and I mean even to this day I mean my dad he's uh, he, he, he teaches at, at one of the universities here I mean they, they are the hardest workers I, I look at the work schedules that my parents still have where you know they're up at eight and not back until five and I feel guilty even as an entrepreneur if I'm not 
matching or exceeding those hours. And to me, they should not be working that that hard still, at, you know, for everything that they've they've done and everything that they've set the grounds for for me and my sister. When you went to university and you played with the Golden Bears, that's at a high level. Can you talk about, you know, just your experience where you're juggling school and also, you know, pretty close to a professional level sport, you know, what that was like and how do you keep at that level? Yeah, that's a really good question. So when I was first coming into university, I wasn't even recruited to play for the Golden Bears. Usually when you get to that level, you know, you have scouts and the coaches, they come watch your basketball games and stuff. But for the school that I was going to, I wasn't uh, in high school, I wasn't competing against basically the best in the in the province or the best in the country. But we were still a very good program, or number one in our in the in the whole province. But we still weren't getting the looks from from the universities and so even from the get-go, I kind of felt that almost feeling of being an underdog. So I had to go to a, a tryout to even have an opportunity to get considered for the team. I just remember even that tryout, it was a really good feeling to know that even being fairly young that I could go and compete with some of the older guys right after that tryout finished off that's when I was actually given my my offer and it was a it was a full ride offer to go play for the university that kind of just set this stage for how the rest of my career would be being defined as an underdog was actually a very good thing because you can kind of come out of the woodwork and surprise people and really just I think that element of surprise is way better than the element of trying to reach a certain bar, a certain level of, of expectations. First, second, third year, we were about a middle, middle of the pack. You know, we were in transition of coaches. Coach Don Howard, who was like the legendary coach there for 26 years, won multiple championships. He was on his way out um, after my first year. So it was really funny because my, my, my basketball career at the university, I had three coaches, which is generally unheard of. But uh, you know, I got really good coaching from uh, from Don Horwood. Then a, a gentleman named uh, Greg Francis. He came on board. After that, uh, Coach Barnaby Craddock. He he finished off the fourth and fifth year. It was really it was really cool to kind of see the different coaching styles at that high level. And it wasn't until our, our fourth to fifth year that we were actually a really good program. We ended up being second and third national medalists, uh, respectively, in those in those two years. At that time, I thought that it was going to be sports that really was what I was passionate about, what, what I was going to do for the rest of my career. But it wasn't until my fourth year when I suffered a very bad hip injury. I, I mean, I still remember this the play to the day. It was during a scrimmage. I just remember kind of going onto that basketball court and, you know, like something just felt off in my body, right? Like it wasn't like a sprained ankle or a sore knee or something, but something just felt off. As a player, we were to, let's say, look at the data, my stride length and how I was running wasn't the same or how high I was getting off the ground for jumping wasn't the same or wasn't as quick and shifty as I used to be uh, during that one practice. But that's not a feeling that you can necessarily, you know, you can't just go to your coach and be like, 
you know, my stride length isn't the same. I'm not running as fast, right? Like he's just going to be like, oh, just get in there and, and perform. Like this is, you know, you're given a full ride scholarship. You you have to basically do this. By all means, I, that was what I had to do. I just remember there was one play I was recovering back on defense. I was backpedaling. The offending player, he went to take a dribble and he kind of shifted from the sideline of the court into the middle of the court. So as I was backpedaling and I was trying to guard him, I opened up my hip. And as I opened up to try and like cut him off, that's when I just felt this really strange tear in my in my groin. Even when I went for for physio immediately after, it was I didn't realize how bad it was. But when I went for physio and I was laying on my side, they asked me to lift my my left leg up. My my, my muscles basically were disconnected where I couldn't lift that lift that leg, mm-hmm. and that's when I knew that it was really really bad. It wasn't until that op- that time and kind of going through that four month recovery process that I really had to reevaluate what I wanted to do with my career. Like sports was something that has guided me and provided me tremendous opportunities. And, you know, even if the best case scenario was I was going to come back and fully recover and still, let's say, take on a professional career in, let's say, Europe. Am I going to play, let's say, 10 years and then have to come back, go into the job market again and start a very preliminary level job or entry level job that I wasn't necessarily passionate about? It was really that point where I really started to take entrepreneurship seriously. I think to your point, as you said before, it's funny how the the times in your life where you think are the most difficult are the ones that actually end up giving you the platform to do the things that are actually arguably, and hindsight's only 2020, but arguably even better for you. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I am interested too in is the idea of the cross-section between different disciplines. There's guiding moments or defining moments in sports that can really speak to you. That was like a time where you were able to kind of create a place for you to make it a different shift in your perspective or decisions. How about with sports in general, or how have you applied that as you kind of moved on in your career? I associate sports with everything entrepreneurial or business-like, right down to, I mean, just walking through the journey of my university career. When I first came on, even though I was competing at a very high level, I wasn't a very good player at the national stage team wasn't a very good team at the national stage with time and with enough consistency and dedication to the practice we evolved and we ended up getting to exactly where we wanted to be with what I'm doing and with work right now is the exact same when I first started my entrepreneurial journey I, I hosted basketball camps when I was like 15 or 16 years old I you know I cleaned windows I did a whole bunch of stuff that were entrepreneurial per se, but it wasn't until I was about 19 when I started a, uh, a digital marketing agency with four of my friends, actually 21, I was 21. It really just put into the mind frame as how like similar sports and you know entrepreneurship were. If you just lasted long enough and gave it enough consistency and enough care, you just try to be a little bit better every single day, you would quickly realize that 
you can be, you know, one of the best in the city, in the province, in the world, if you gave it that time. And that that is a very arguable statement because I'm not going to be the best, let's say, biologist or rapper or whatever. You know, I have to find the the career path that fits into kind of what I like to consider my ikigai. Have you heard of the term ikigai? No, tell me. So it's a Japanese term that translates into the reason for being. So if you can imagine, it's this intersection between four very prominent circles, right? The first circle is what you love. The second is what you're good at. The third is what the world needs. And the fourth is what the world will pay you for. If you can find the intersection between those four areas, that is you know, your, your reason for being and this Japanese translation for, for ikigai. I think that's one of the powerful things that entrepreneurship or being in business or building your own brand, whatever you want to call it, allows you to do it. It really allows you to search and try new things and find the things that you're passionate about, find the things that you're good at, find the things that you can be paid for and that the world actually needs. But I think there's this misconception for young people or even older people. I mean, I don't think this is an age bracket thing where we're forced to kind of fit into some bucket very early on. You're almost looked down upon if you don't find, you know, your career path in your 20s or something, right? Yeah. And it's it's, it's crazy to me. Um, well, how about this? So you come out of university, you've decided to put together a company with a group of friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you tell me just the formation of that first team? <laughs> you know, maybe the personalities. Were you thinking on that level of ikigai at that moment in time? And probably not. Like, it's just <laughs> when you're first starting something up. But, yeah, just, just work us through that. Why that was so important. Yeah, that's a really good question. So regarding formation, we really had no formation. And this was when we really started to learn that we were going to get kicked in the you know what, very early on. We were really just four friends who, when I look back, we had the exact same set of skills and we were trying to form this this marketing agency. We were all basically glorified account managers or we can even say business development because you know we, we, we got lucky with getting a few, few, few contracts and clients. But it was really interesting because those times of failure actually teach you way more than when, when you're achieving success, I guess. We didn't have a formation pretty much. You know, we had to hire in all the talent that we needed. So, I mean, if you think for a, uh, a, a marketing agency and at the time we were, fi- we were focusing on digital marketing, you know, we needed web designers, we needed copywriters, illustrators, graphic graphic artists, more account managers. So we got lucky, got some pretty big contracts with companies like Papa John's and Telus. I just remember being that young and every month for about like eight to nine months, we were seeing five figures reoccurring into our bank account. So we were just like, holy shit, like... You know, we're, we're, we're doing this thing. We're, 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 we're killing this, right? So then 
our smart asses decided it's a good idea to go out and you know build a team of I think we grew to about like nine people when those contracts get to the tail end and you're not getting that reoccurring revenue anymore you still gotta do something <laughs> with those nine people so that was really a, a big learning curve for us what's ironic is a lot of the skill sets that I learned as far as even how to build a team what's needed to run a successful marketing shop understanding growth marketing. If I didn't have that experience, I wouldn't have the opportunity to work with Autonomic right now or for C-Tribe to even see the growth that it's seeing right now where, you know, in our first year we had 168 people to our third year we had 1,100 people attend over the five days. And it, it was all because of the stuff that I learned earlier on building a marketing agency as far as like build a brand and how to build a team and how to implement a, a growth marketing engine and all. Obviously it's things that I learned even after the marketing en uh, agency ended up folding because we, we ended up closing it. This day, like those guys are still, you know, some, some of my really good friends. One of my friends, he, he just moved back from London. He's working as the, the director of growth for this, for this company based out of, uh, out of London. You know, I was, I was literally with him last night. There, there's a lot of like latent things that come about from um, searching for what your ikigai or what your reason for, for being is. But at the time, we, we did not even consider that as uh, one of the reasons for why we're doing this. It was just, hey, we need to get a win under our belt. You know, we want to build something. We don't want to get a paycheck from anywhere else unless we're, we're earning it ourselves. How about, let's move to Capsule, the idea of creating and, and making Capsule. Where did that come from? And what was the, the motivation behind it? Capsule is probably going to be the biggest business venture that I end up working on in my lifetime. Even though it's failed, I'm probably going to go back and work on it. Some of the technologies that's going to ramp up the development of Capsule is becoming much more democratized. So basically Capsule, what it is, it is a, it's kind of like a Yelp for video. I just remember being in Montreal one summer. I was really excited to go to the city and I heard so many good things, but I was just frustrated that I I was forced to read written recommendations and reviews from people who A, I didn't know anything about, B, I had to basically pull out what they were trying to say through their written content. I just ended up getting more reviews and recommendations from my peers who were maybe in the area before or living there or just going on, let's say, Instagram and watching people's videos or searching up the, the hashtag MTL food. Or, and that's just kind of when it dawned to me that video recommendations and video recommendations from your friends more particularly, it's, it's a medium of communication now. So this was way before Instagram stories and Snapchat stories. Ended up doing some research and I just found that it takes 1.8 million words to communicate the same message as a one minute video. With the growth of what's called the video economy now, more people are defaulting to watching video. Um, whether it's for recommendation purposes, whether it's for entertainment purposes, the video economy is growing 14% compound annual growth year over year. What makes it more interesting now is that with blockchain technology, usually in the past, if you were going to Montreal, 
we were really good friends and you asked for a recommendation as far as what my favorite restaurant was or favorite places to go to eat or, or experience. Even if you utilize that recommendation and you ended up in some of the venues that I was in or I recommended to you, I would not see any benefit from that. I mean, if you think of the review and recommendation economy right now, if you read something online and you ended up actually getting a tangible benefit from that review, that reviewer doesn't get any form of benefit from it. But now you can actually track that data or that interaction through the through the blockchain. You can now work it back to exactly that person that provided that recommendation, tracking to that time when Scott actually went to that restaurant and maybe not exactly what he purchased, but now that reviewer recommender can be rewarded for the work that he put to create that content. I mean, it's still something that and it's really funny. It was one of my one of the speakers that came in for the event. She works for a company called Endor, based out of Boston. It's a MIT powered AI engine, but she is like a blockchain guru. And her company ended up raising forty five million dollars for this uh, engine that they created. I was talking about how I transitioned from Capsule to C Tribe and what business idea was around Capsule and how we wanted to monetize and how we wanted it to be this platform for people who provided really good reviews and recommendations for their friends. And so she was the one who gave me the inspiration to consider the blockchain ledger as a way to track that data and track those interactions. It isn't anything that I'm going back anytime soon, but reviews and recommendations have been around forever. Word of mouth has been around forever. It's not going away anytime soon. I think just with the experience that I'm getting from working with Autonomic, you know, the relationships that I'm getting to build with with C Tribe, I think I'm just building the perfect opportunity to go back, eventually build that community. So when you look at the the different quadrants in that that Japanese idea, Ikigai, trying to basically figure out what's important, you know, the one is how do you make money off of it? Mm-hmm. That's almost, in in a way, making it real, making it where the idea is going to survive on its own. Do you feel when you have moved to Sea Tribe, the new work that you're doing with Autonomic, Mm -hmm. that you are moving from a place where it might have been more theoretical to a place where you're making decisions that are concrete decisions to, to help move whatever ideas you have forward. So what, what I mean by that is, what are the past experiences that, that you've been gaining throughout all of these ventures that are helping you create a framework to make decisions that can make your ideas live out in the real world? How do you think you're making those strides? What's changed the way you think to make things work differently? I mean, obviously, you know, you have to be in the business to to make money, to build anything sustainable, to build anything that's going to have its own legs establish a foundation in whatever respective community or city or province or country or world that you you want to have that business be in. Always have to be thinking as far as how this thing is going to grow its own legs. I think where people may falter with that way of thinking is A, they follow the money way too early and they don't optimize for building out the experience or they don't optimize for the right growth metrics. So, I mean, if if you look at with C-Tribe, for example, our first event, 168 people, our second event, 407, the third, uh, 1,122. But if we were just focused on the revenue that we are making, we would 
basically be like, oh, we're, we're negative, 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 instead of focusing on, there's actually people retaining and coming back year over year here. They want to see this community continue to thrive, right? So I think people follow the money way too early. And I mean, it kind of goes back to what the school system teaches us to, as soon as you graduate, you get a job, you buy a house, you get a car. Now you're kind of stuck in the system. You can't pivot, you can't move. Following the money is, is kind of one of the it's a catch-22 because to my earlier point, you have to build a business that does become sustainable. Mm-hmm. Secondly, you can't optimize for revenue and optimize for experience at the same time. Right. If Facebook was building their company to just be revenue-driven and not optimize on people coming back to their platform day over day or hour over hour, then they would have a completely different business model or completely different features that they would implement. I think that every company can treat themselves like a a tech company, focus on what are those experiences that we can build that keep people coming back year over year or month over month or week over week or day over day. To your point, you still have to be in a market and an industry where there is that long-term growth or there is that that market opportunity. When we were evaluating whether C-Tribe would be a good business venture or not, the easiest thing that I could have done was look at other events that were in the city, whether it be, you know, and not to knock their hustle, but like Folk Fest and Heritage Days and French Festival and great organizations. I mean, I can only wish that I can build uh, a, a festival or, or event series that is that successful. When you look at it from a global landscape and you look at some of the successful organizations at a world level, so, you know, the South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, Web Summits in Lisbon, Elevate. Uh, Toronto, those are humongous operations. Lisbon alone, they saw, I think, 70,000 people attend this year. Austin, Texas, every single year, they have 400,000 people attend their festival over 10 days. That's very similar to having the Super Bowl in your city year over year. If you look at the economic impact that they have, I think every year they drive uh, between like 350 to 400 million dollars of economic impact just within those 10 days. So that's people coming into the city, taking out hotel rooms, spending money at bars, at restaurants and all that. Obviously, you know, spending money at the South by South West Festival itself, going to the different events that are officially sponsored by South by Southwest. It's a humongous, humongous operation. Saying that, it kind of goes back to my earlier point where you kind of just have to stay long enough in the game to get lucky. Always just optimize on the experience and not just focus on on revenue, right? I mean, even now, like I'm, you know, there's things that we have to do. There's bills that we have to pay to keep Sea Tribe running and the engine going. Even I'm just looking into our next year, like we want to grow to be a 10,000 person festival next year. That might seem ambitious to people. Last year, when I was like, okay, we know we had 400 people, let's grow to be a thousand person festival. That was ambitious for people. Going from two days to five days, that was very, people were like, oh shit, like, you know, we shouldn't do that. But it's like, why not? Like, let's look at the other models around the world. Let's look at how they grow and let's look at the resources and ideas that they put together to get to the point where they are. With, say, Sea Tribe and the festival, what are the success measures that you were looking at before it started this year and then kind of reflecting after were the success measures any different? Mm. Yeah, so there's this five main success metrics that we look at. Obviously the number of attendees. So during our first event, 160 to 1100 people. 
social media impressions is really huge for us. So I, I don't know what we had in our first event, but our second event, we had 636,000 social media impressions over just two days. This third event, we kind of fell short per se, given that it was a five-day event and that we got to 1.4 million social media impressions. We look at numbers of days of programming. First event, we had one day, second second event, two days, and now five days. We look at partners, so number of partners that we worked with. Last year, we had 34 partners. This year, we had 67. We look at speakers. So we, we grew to 60 speakers this year over the five days. And those are all very... They're not revenue metrics at all. None of them point to whether, I mean, maybe attendees will point to whether there's more money coming to the bank account. You know, those are those are metrics that are, are very important for us. That quantifies whether we're growing in the right direction. If people are willing to take out their phone and tag the C-Tribe Festival or a C-Tribe hashtag, that is very meaningful for us in this digital economy that we live in. That means that people want to share with the rest of the world that they are at our event. A new metric that we added this year actually was the number of hours of programming. This year we had 73 hours of programming. So that means people were willing to give up hours in their day in this distracted world that we live in to attend our, our festival. And that I take a lot of honor in that and I don't take any of that for granted because that is a humongous responsibility. We're not only competing with other events that are going on in the city or around the world or competing against the fact that people can stay home and watch Netflix. We're competing against the fact that people can go to a coffee shop instead of coming to a speaking series or a C-Tribe event. You know, we're, we're competing for the fact that it's over spring or so it's over reading week and people can travel. We're competing against the fact that we're trying to grow the number of international delegates. So this year we, we saw 85 international delegates come into the city for the event. People coming from Nigeria, Geneva, Jamaica, Colombia came to Edmonton, Alberta for this event. That is very powerful and profound for us. And those are all metrics that if we were just focused on the, the bottom line or, or, the, or the top line, then I think we would be growing in the wrong direction. You know, with C-Tribe, uh, I think in a lot of ways, are something that is connected to you, but it's trying to bring together commerce, technology, culture. That's right. right? Yep. Like, so that that's kind of the essence of, of C-Tribe, right? That's exactly it. So what do these things have in common? What it has in common is that we live in a world of collisions. We live in a world where you can take two very opposing ideas, mold it into one, and create new industries. I think one of the biggest disadvantages that underrepresented regions in the innovation ecosystem, one of the disadvantages that they have is just their sheer population size. We're trying to, let's say, create an innovation corridor here in Edmonton, and the greater Edmonton area is 1.3 million people. You go to New York and what, it's like 28 million people? California, 35 million people? So we just we sh can't compete on the sheer amount of population because there's just a good opportunity that when you go into those other ecosystems that you're going to run into someone that you can partner with or someone that you can work with or that can be your customer or that you can offer value to, whatever. We don't have that luxury here. Our thesis with C-Tribe is how do we get more people, increase the density, increase the percentage of the population invested into the innovation and creative ecosystem and believing that they can be that factor that moves that needle 
to make that change versus in just trying to compete on population size because we're, we're not going to win that battle. If we get more people from different cultures, different backgrounds, different perspectives and really create a collision and people believing that, hey, like this technology thing, this creativity thing, this innovation thing, it's not scary. We just have to be bold enough to go out into the world to build exactly what we want to build. Take over the last two decades, we've seen companies started by either like mom and pop shops or students or two or three person garages that have completely just disrupted the economies as we know it. Let's take the, everyone wants to look at Elon Musk. I mean, he's just a a perfect example. Like he alone has disrupted the financial sector with PayPal, the automobile sector with Tesla, the utility sector with SolarCity. You can just go on and name the different sectors that he alone, I mean, obviously with the support of of the community and has has been able to do. So what's, what's stopping us? What's stopping us? from creating that economic opportunity for the region that we live in. You know, looking to engage people, fire them up about mm. new ideas, new commerce, different culture. How do you inspire yourself? I know you went on a little bit of a tour of the States recently. I find that, you know, one thing that's important to me is looking outside to look within. How do you make that happen? Can you maybe talk about folks in your life who you go back to for inspiration or guidance or or places or people that you try to connect with so you can do that and you can continue to be innovative I think it's it's really simple. I think we we don't have to go anywhere else other than just pull up our phone and get connected with anyone or anything or anywhere in the world. I think the the powerfulness of the devices that we have in our back pockets now it's just it's so profound. Like it's it's sometimes it's mind boggling. Even I don't even seek mentorship from people locally, not because I don't think I can get that mentorship per se. If I want to be the best in the world, I have to align myself with the best in the world. And I mean, to your point, it's really important to kind of leave the bubble and leave your nest that you're very familiar with and do go out into the rest of the world to see what is inspiring other people. Cannot place a value on that. That's just, it's invaluable. Like have to do that. A couple years ago, I ran into a gentleman named Tristan Walker. He was building a company called Bevel. And basically what they were, well, the, the mother company is called uh, Walker Company and Brands. Basically what they were is they were a health and beauty company for people of color. Uh, I mean, long story short, they ended up, I was just reading, they ended up getting acquired by uh, Procter & Gamble. I looked to Tristan Walker, he's, he's a founder of that company, and I looked to him as like a form of mentorship and guidance and stuff. It's not because I have a personal one-to-one relationship with where I can just pick up the phone and be like, hey Tristan, have this question or whatever. I don't have that relationship with him. It feels like I can find out things that have worked for him just by looking at how he builds his organizations and how he speaks about his companies and his organizations by just watching his YouTube videos or the content that he publishes online on social media. Right now we have that power and there is no excuse anymore to seek that mentorship from the best people in the world, whether it be books or case studies or videos or autobiographies or whatever the material is available to us. We just have to be willing to go out and and search it. And that usually just means pulling out your phone. How about with Autonomic? You've moved into this new role as a VP. What's that experience been like? And can you tell us a little bit about 
I'd like to use this idea of a should voice where you're just going to go out and make it happen and you're excited to do it. And then also a stuck voice where you're just like, you know, I don't think I can do this. I am I am either afraid or I'm worried or I'm concerned. Different people battle with this uh, differently. Some people don't even have a stuck voice. Yeah, that's a really good question. So Autonomic, as you mentioned, they're a company based out of the San Francisco Bay Area. What they do is they use AI to help businesses build better software products. So I mean, if you think everything in the world now is moving into this digital transformation where it has to be codified as a piece of software, apps, hardware devices, everything has integrated within it, you know, some form of software. Now companies are forced to deliver really strong customer experiences very quickly. Let's say if you are a bank, you have the wrong line of code that is deployed in your platform, that can end up costing you know millions, if not billions of dollars. And basically, the whole theory and thesis around Autonomic is machines are way better at spotting inconsistencies in a software product and detecting bugs in software products way better than humans can. So right now, if you were to talk to a quality assurance manager or, or someone who just does manual testing, it's a very tedious process. Let's say you were gonna test the Instagram platform. You would pull it up on your device. You would have 40 devices on different cell phones in front of you, pull it up in each one and be like, okay, this is the, it's called a test case. This is the test case that I, I need to test right now. I need to open up Instagram. I need to log in with my password and username. And think about e each of these requirements requirements have a different set of requirements, right? A password has to match that username, and if they don't, there should be no reason that you can get into that account. There's very specific steps that you have to understand with, with software testing, and then from there, I, I want to go to Scott's profile, I want to scroll down three scrolls and like the third picture. There has to be a test case that's generated for each one of these requirements. And basically, if you think about it from as a manual tester, you have your phone and you're basically walking through these requirements and then logging it in what's called uh, executable script, where now the machine can go in, test that requirement day over day or week over week. As a, as a tester, you have to understand how to what those corner cases and what those requirements are for the software that you're testing, then you have to be able to write that executable script so that you don't have to go in anymore to test those requirements. So what the script does is that it'll now go and log in, go to Scott's profile, scroll down three pages and then like that. Basically with Autonomic, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible opportunity and I'm so blessed to, to have the chance to to work with them because we remove a lot of that tedious work from the process so now that manual tester doesn't have to write that code themselves they can just walk through those steps on the back end the the software will spit out this like 500 600 lines of code that will basically be your executable selenium script is what, what you call it i guess to, to answer your question i mean at the time when I first came on board with Autonomic, I knew nothing about software testing. Even to this day, I still don't know enough about software testing. I think it was one of those moments where I just kind of got a flashback of one of my favorite quotes. The opportunity doesn't scare you, then it's the wrong opportunity for you. So I met Rom. Rom, he's the CEO of, of Autonomic. I met him when I was in Portugal and we were both speaking at an event. The only reason why we really connected 
is kind of went into this like, oh, like what do you do? And he was like, I, I started this uh, company called Autonomic. We use AI to do software testing. And just because I was from Alberta and from Edmonton and just understanding how prevalent AI is, what it has done in the world and what it is gonna continue to do in the world, I was able to connect with him on a, on a much meaningful level than probably he was able to with other people that were attending the conference. Secondly, when you asked me what I did and I said that you know I run this creativity and innovation festival in, in, in Canada, and he's like, oh, you guys are kind of like you know, the South by Southwest of Canada. I was like, yeah, like you, you kind of get it. And, you know, I think we were both kind of having interactions through that conference where we were talking about what we do to other people. And it was kind of just going over their head. But we just really created a, a really strong relationship. We just, you know, we exchanged business cards. You know, when I when I got back, I, I was like, hey, you know, I really enjoyed connecting with you. And um, we have our festival in November. You know, we'd love to have you come speak. You know, he said, yeah, you know, I, I'd love to come speak then I was on LinkedIn I think like a few weeks later I shared this article so the city of Calgary they launched this fund called the Opportunity Calgary Investment Fund where they were investing a hundred million dollars into companies that they would consider innovative and catalytic turned out that with Autonomic having 21 people in the Bay Area right now that they were looking at expanding into some form of international operations. So Rom was considering you know, office spaces in Germany and in uh, Portugal and India and you know a whole bunch of places. And then he saw that I shared this thing and the city of Calgary is looking for innovative companies. <laughs> so he was like, hey, like, what is this? Can you, uh, can you tell me more about it? So we, you know, we had a few emails and it turned out that I knew one of the fund managers that was running the fund. So I emailed her and I was like, I met this company when I was in Portugal, you know, are they going to fit for this? And even at this time, I, I really didn't think that it would turn out to be anything for, for me. Like, I was just happy that, you know, I created this relationship with this, with this guy and he was willing to come speak at our event. And she, she emailed me back and she was like, yeah, like there, that's like a perfect type of company. You know, we're, we're trying to diversify our economy here and AI is, is one of those industries that we're really interested in. Ram ended up asking me whether I wanted to come on board to assist with this application process. Yeah, you know, I, I, I can happily do that. I mean, I, I write grants, funding papers all the time that deal with government and stuff like that's That's no problem. We actually, we ended up getting turned down for that opportunity, but he still offered me the position to, to come in and, and run the Canadian operations because at this point, he started to understand that for the same type of software development talent or marketing talent that they could get in the Bay Area, they could get it up here for A, the discount on the dollar, which is 30%, plus the living expenses are way lesser here in Canada than they are in San Jose. I mean, there was just such a huge cost savings that was just realized throughout the whole process where it's like, hey, like maybe we should consider Canada as a place to have our international operations. At the time they were, like I said, they were looking at like India and Germany and, and China, but you know, the language barrier, the time barrier. And so it's just a lot of these stars that ended up aligning. just really aligning. And, and even as like I get embedded into the role now, my assumption with 21 people is that they would have, you know, like a, a marketing team. And as I kind of got to know the people and the assets that were on the team, it was just a lot of really good software engineers that could build very strong uh, products. And the biggest value has not been the fact that I've come in and, and helped with the international operations. And my biggest value has come that I'm now running the growth marketing for 
the full operations, U.S. and Canada. I mean, it comes back to the work that I did with the Nimbus when I was 21 years old. Uh, and I mean, at the mo- at the time when that offer did come about, like you said, I did have that that point of doubt where I was like, holy shit, A, this is an industry I don't know anything about. I'm kind of laying my reputation on the line to say that this thing will be successful here in Canada if, if they do choose to choose this region as a place to expand. B, never been a VP per se for already established companies and, and, and whatnot. You know, I did have those moments of doubt, but then you know, right back to that quote is that if, if the opportunity doesn't doesn't scare you, then it's a the wrong opportunity. And we've kind of gone through a lot of different experiences that you've had in the past. And if you look on somebody else who is starting as a young entrepreneur, what types of uh, recommendations would you give them? Like, what would you suggest for kind of the new and up and coming? And it's, it's hard to even say that because in a lot of ways you've grown so quickly and done so much in such a short period of time. I think that you have a lot to reflect back on and give advice for. Yeah, what, what, what types of advice would you, you mention to the, the new and upcoming entrepreneur? I think it always falls back to you know, some form of a framework. I think the more that I get involved with a lot of things and I get my feet wet in a lot of things is more that I realize that no matter how high you go or what level you you get to, no one actually really knows what they're doing. I mean, I've met people that have created companies and sold them for a lot of money and even to this day, we just stuck around long enough to get lucky. So, I mean, saying that and understanding that it's gonna take I mean, a lot of work. I mean, for the first three or four months that I was with Autonomic, like I wasn't getting a financial compensation for my time. And at the start of it, I wasn't doing a lot of work. I was maybe doing about 10, 12 hours a week for them. Kind of as we got into the late latter periods, I was doing, you know, it was almost like a full time job. Right. And I wasn't getting compensated for it financially. I think if I were just following the paycheck or following the money, I would have not looked at that opportunity as to what it actually was. I think you you just, you really, you have to be obsessed with working on big problems that keep you up at night and get you up early in the morning. And knowing that you have the skill set or you can acquire the skill set or the expertise to solve that big problem or surround yourself with those tools and resources to solve those big problems. And there's no reason in the world that we live in now that we, we can't do that. You know, working on big problems, so that's kind of to that framework of Ikigai, what the world actually needs, what the world will pay you for. And that not obviously being like the only driver, because I think that's the thing that people only look at or they, they'll only consider what they can be paid for and what their passion is. But your passion and what you're actually good at, those also are two, could be two very different things. I was passionate as a, as a basketball player, and I mean, I was fairly good, don't get me wrong. Was I going to be the next LeBron James and be the best in the world? I, I don't think so. Um, you know, some would argue to say the opposite, but, you know, in my opinion, I, I definitely don't think so. It, it's just, it's that cross section that you just have to be obsessed with trying to just find that match. Yeah, there's days where I wake up and I'm like, what the hell am I doing, right? Like, this went wrong. Like, there's this fire here. We have to deal with this. If you have that North Star that you're chasing, keeps you up at night and it gets you up early in the morning, then that is really just a framework that I think, you know, whether you're an entrepreneur or whether you're not, like, I think that's just a framework that, you know, a lot of people should should follow and stuff. 
Yeah, the last uh, question I, I generally ask in our podcast, more of a fun question than anything else, mm-hmm. is if you could have billboard that would kind of, you know, sum up kind of uh, a message that you'd want to get out there. And, and you have a marketing background, right? <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Put me on the spot. So, <laughs> yeah. Is there, a, is there a message that uh, that you'd want people to have and, and it could uh, relate to something that done like in C tribe or it could be just something completely different, just more personal? There are people out in the world that are being paid for and being paid for really well for something that you want to be paid for, but they're just willing to lay their neck out and go chase it. And it's, it's basically to say that I mean, ideas, talents, and opportunities exist everywhere. Um, the economic transfer in the world is so predominant now. There isn't an abundance, or sorry, there isn't a lack of money or wealth transfer or opportunity or whatnot. But there are people that are out there in the world that are doing exactly what you want to do and are being paid for the thing that you want to do. And you're probably better at what they're doing, at what you want to do than they are but they're actually doing it. So yeah. I don't know how that slogan would... You don't need to fit it on the billboard, or it could, it could be a really large billboard. Yeah. But I think that you know it's almost like a Nike thing, like just do it. Yeah. There are people who actually do. Exactly. Just do it. Yeah. I've laid uh, in bed late at night thinking that and wondering why not uh, a lot of times. Why not uh, me? Yeah. Like, why not try it? Yeah. Like, why not give it? Yeah. So, no, I love that. That's that, that's an awesome yeah. sentiment. I, I really enjoy it. Thank you. So, for, thanks so much for, for taking the time to, to chat with me today. If we're going to catch you on the interweb, where do we want to find you? You can find me on, on Instagram. Facebook and uh, and Twitter. Yeah, those are usually the, the platforms that I'm most active. And you can follow us on Sea Tribe as well. So Sea Tribe Festival on Facebook and Instagram. Wonderful. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure. And thanks, thanks so much for including me in this.